Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Outside the System. In this episode, I spoke with Gabe Brown, one of the world's top experts on soil health and regenerative agriculture. I first came across Gabe and his work through the Kiss the Ground documentary on Netflix after Callie Means recommended it during our conversation a few weeks ago. As you'll hear Gabe explain on the episode, soil health is a major lever for improving human and environmental health. Thanks to tilling, monocropping, and short-term incentives, our soil has been depleted of micronutrients and carbon, which leads to health problems and natural disasters. Gabe has spent his career on solving this problem and shares his experiences, as well as what all of us can do to support regenerative agriculture through where we buy our food. If you're enjoying the show, you can support Outside the System by leaving a review, telling a friend, and sending us Bitcoin on any podcast player that supports Podcasting 2.0. Let's get to it. Gabe, thanks so much for joining me on Outside the System. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Yeah, so I came across you through the Kiss the Ground documentary that Callie recommended uh, when I had my conversation with him. And, you know, your story was so fascinating. And I don't want to steal your thunder here, but just everything you kind of went through to get to where you are today and teaching what you're teaching today um, is kind of hard fought through. Uh, personal knowledge. So um, I think maybe that's the best place to start. I, w- I would love for you to just tell your story, how you got here, uh, and you know what you're doing today. Okay. So briefly, I did not grow up on a farm and ranch. I grew up in the city of Bismarck. I took an interest in agriculture, though, through vocational education classes in junior high and high school. Started working on farms and then I actually went to college to be an ag instructor, an ag educator. But as luck would have it, I married my high school sweetheart, and she was from a farm. Uh, She had two sisters and no brothers, and her parents asked if we would be interested after college in moving back and taking over uh, this farm. And, of course, I was enthused. My wife, not so much. She always told people she married a city kid to get away from the farm, and Here I brought her back to it. But my in-laws were very conventional in their thinking. Uh, Half summer follow on their cropland, half cash crops, all small grains, spring wheat, oats, barley, and then season-long grazing with their cow herd. Well, me not knowing a lot, I was an avid learner, and I'd read about rotational grazing. I'd read about no-till, and so I wanted to try those things. Well, in 1991, we had the good fortune. We were able to purchase part of the farm from them. And in 1994, I went 100% zero till. Sold all my tillage equipment because it just made sense to me. We're in a semi-brittle environment. We get from 16 to 18 inches of precipitation uh, normally. Not so much the past three years, but it, it was imperative that I don't till and lose that moisture. I needed to infiltrate it and then store it in the soil. So we went no-till. First year had a very good crop. I thought this was easy. 1995 came along and the day before we were going to start combining, I had 1,200 acres of spring wheat in. We lost 100% of the crop to hail. Now that was pretty devastating because at that time I didn't take out any hail insurance. And so it set us back significantly. 
1996 came along. We lost 100% of our crop to hail again. My wife and I both took off-farm jobs because we had a young family to support and we had to pay the bills. 1997 came along and we dried out. Nobody in the area combined an acre. It was a very dry year. 1998 came along and I lost 80% of the crop to hail. Well, four years of no income really was, it was very tough to go through, but I tell people it was absolutely the best thing that could have happened to me. Financially, we found ourselves $1.5 million approximately in debt and a big hole to climb out of. But the good thing is I started to see changes to the land. We started to see without the tillage for years, we started to see earthworms in the soil. We started to see better aggregation. I had started to diversify the crop rotation. That was proving beneficial. I started to add fall seeded biennials and uh, with our limited moisture, they provided me a decent crop in the spring. We, we then started planting cover crops and grazing those with livestock because we literally did not have the money to be able to put up hay. And so I was integrating animals onto the cropland. We were doing more rotational grazing, so we started to see the health of the pastures improve, increase species diversity, and increase soil health. And so even though it was really tough financially to go through, it really opened my eyes to the powers of the natural ecosystems. And, you know, at that time, there was Nobody was talking about regenerative agriculture. Nobody was talking about the six principles of soil health. They hadn't even really been formulated yet. But I really now have come to the realization that I was being taught a lesson with all those years of natural disasters. And it's a lesson that's proved out well. And now since then, uh, I retired from actively ranching here four years ago, and our son runs the operation now, but uh, my three partners and I at Understanding Ag have uh, formed a regenerative consulting company, and we're now actively consulting on over 33 million acres in the U.S., the U.K., and Ireland, and along with Canada and Mexico, and so that's exciting. We have a nonprofit, Soil Health Academy, where we educate anyone who will listen as to these principles and the three rules of adaptive stewardship and how they drive ecosystem function. And then this past year, we formed another company called Regenified, whose mission is to verify throughout supply chains, regenerative practices. So keeping a bit busy. Yeah, you have the the trifecta there of resources for people. Uh, So I have a question that kind of just came to mind. How did the traditional approach to agriculture in this country even start this monocropping? Because to me, at least, and I obviously only have a layman's understanding of this, it would, I would imagine in the past, maybe people had done things in a little bit more of a regenerative, sustainable way to even have us make it to this point in time, right? That we were still able to feed people. Or has it always been monocropping and traditional? Yeah, realize it pretty much, it's been monocultures in the individual cash crop. Now, century ago, farms were much more diverse. They grew a wider array of different crops and forage crops because 
the the source of power was primarily horse and oxen and you know draft animals and so they had to feed them so because of that they had a wider array now the mechanization and that whole movement drived and spurred the movement to larger and larger farms more industrialized the ability to till more acres realize tillage has been around for thousands of years and it's been very detrimental realize that the dust bowl of the 30s was caused by an organic system that had tillage involved but what really spurred the decline was world war ii after world war ii they took many of the munitions facilities and started manufacturing synthetic nitrogen fertilizer and if you study soils uh, soils are made at, comprised of a parks, approximately one part nitrogen to 11 parts carbon. So as farmers started dumping higher and higher and applying higher and higher rates of nitrogen fertilizer, the soil became out of balance. We were lacking carbon. And the more nitrogen you apply, the more carbon that's used up. Thus, it goes into the atmosphere, which is a big reason now that anywhere from 50 on up to 75 plus percent of the carbon that was once in our soils is now in the atmosphere. So that really spurred it. And then it just continued with the use of pesticides and fungicides and all these other synthetic inputs. Well, the carbon point is something I definitely want to come back to. Uh, but before we do that, I think on the conventional agriculture approach, I think it would be helpful to dive into maybe what some of the problems are with it that farmers face and then what you know as a society we probably face as a result of conventional agriculture sure and realize that this has been a long-term slow decline in the degradation of our natural ecosystems and i tell people you know we we can't blame farmers and ranchers alone for this degradation because society has demanded it you know, the federal farm program, et cetera, demands we produce more and more higher and higher yields, more and more output. We're sold the mantra that, well, farmers and ranchers have to feed the world, so you have to produce more and more. Well, what that has caused is an increased use in these synthetic fertilizers, pesticides, fungicides, et cetera, which has accelerated the degradation of the resource. You know, I have the good fortune. I travel extensively. I'm on hundreds of farms and ranches all over the world every year. And I tell people, I have never, ever, not once, stood on a single farm or ranch that's not degraded. And that includes my own. I still have degraded resources because it was degraded for so many decades and for so long. Now, Fortunately, a lot of us are starting to regenerate our resources. We're taking carbon out of the atmosphere, putting it back into the carbon cycle in the soil where it belongs. You know, we're starting to clean up the water. We're using less and less of these synthetic inputs. So it's on a positive trend on many ranches and farms, but not on all. I also saw on going back to the carbon point and, and what you were just talking about, You've done, uh, I think I saw it on one of your websites, where you've done in-depth testing of the soil's carbon retention rates on your ranch. Mm -hmm. And it looks like, uh, at least the results that I have here, it says your soils have 96 tons of carbon per acre in the top 48 inches 
10 to 30 tons is what is typical on conventionally farmed soils in the same region. And so you're talking at, at minimum more than three times what the conventional farm is able to, to store in the soil. Yeah, I would say more than three times what the conventional farm has in their soils because they're degraded. Realize that all of my neighboring farms have every bit the potential I do if they change their management practices. And I always tell farmers and ranchers, you know, so often when I travel and speak, they will tell me, ah, Gabe, but you don't understand. Our soils aren't like that. So I simply tell them, go home, walk in your house, go in the bathroom, look in the mirror. There's your problem. You know, our farms and ranches are a direct result of our management, or as I like to call it, our stewardship of our land. Soils are simply sand, silt, and clay bound together by glomalin from mycorrhizal fungi and by biotic glues that are secreted from soil microorganisms. So all soils are sand, silt, and clay. That's why I can be confident I can travel anywhere in the world and talk to any farmer or rancher because we have that in common. So, uh, Yes, we have on our ranch been able to bring significant amounts of carbon back out of the atmosphere and put it in the soil. But again, I'm still not to probably where these soils were pre-European settlement. So I've got a ways to go also. How far do you think you are from where it was pre-European settlement? Like I'm wondering how far degraded they are. Well, what is very common and what I see and realize this past year, you know, we worked in 46 different states, four foreign countries that we actively consulted. By and large, the majority of land that we sample and we do soil testing on on all these properties, a minimum, a bare minimum, uh, 50% of the carbon has been released, but the average would probably be closer to 75%. That's just how degraded they are. They're severely degraded. And some might not want to believe that, but it's true. And you mentioned uh, nutrient density of the crops in an earlier uh, interview as well. So, you know, is that, and my understanding of that problem is that the incentive for the farmer is to have, like they're basically charging by weight. And so if they're, they're trying to maximize weight, they're not being paid for the nutrient density. Is that, uh, is that understanding correct or am I thinking about that wrong? Yeah, no, that is correct. Farmers are paid for yield and, you know, in the case of grain and they're paid for pounds in the case of their proteins, their beef or milk, etc. And there is no payment for the nutrient density of those products. Now let's talk about nutrient density a little bit. So we're involved in some scientific research that's actually measuring phytonutrient compounds of food. Now, why phytonutrient compounds? Well, it's the phytonutrient compounds that actually drive the health of our gut microbiome, okay? So plants, what, what happens if you have healthy soil you have a plethora of biology. And this, these microorganisms in the soil, they bring nutrients to the plants and then, you know, predator uh, uh, 
protozoa and nematodes consume bacteria. And when they do, they release excess nutrients. And that's the nutrient cycle. That's what plants feed off of. And I'm being very simplistic here to explain this, but that's how plants get their nutrients. Okay. So those plants then produce a wide array of phytonutrient compounds if they're healthy. So we're working with Dr. Stefan Van Vliet, Dr. Fred Provenza, Dr. Scott Kronberg, who are going out there, they're testing the soils on farms and ranches that are using regenerative practices. They're testing the soils on neighboring farms and ranches that are not using regenerative practices. Then they're testing the plants that are growing uh, in those soils. Then if there's animals involved, they're testing the animals, the, the dung of those animals. Then when those animals are harvested or when the grain is harvested or fruit or vegetables, they test those for phytonutrient compounds. They can measure over 2,500 different phytonutrient compounds. And what they're finding is that, that there's a real connection between the health of the soil and the array and quantity of these phytonutrient compounds. And it's those phytonutrient compounds, as I said, that feed our gut microbiome. And as you're well aware, our gut microbiome is our immune system. You know, I, I'll just use this as an example. So I travel extensively, over 280 days a year. Last year, I was on 242 flights. Okay, if anybody's going to get sick, it should be me. But I don't get sick very often. Why not? I carry my own food with me, and I pretty much only eat food that's grown and raised in our healthy soils. And so I have a very healthy gut microbiome, and my immune system is strong. So what we envision is moving to a food system where farmers and ranchers are paid based on just how nutrient-dense, so to speak, the food they're producing is. And if that's the case, we'll be able to lay that out for consumers, saying, hey, you know, you should be able to walk into any store or go to your local farmer, rancher, or farmer's market, buy something, and you should be able to tell just how nutrient-dense that food is, how much phytonutrients are in there. So that's why I tell consumers, go meet your farmer or rancher. Know intimately where your food comes from because your health, the health of your children, is directly related to the health of the soils and the ecosystem on that farm and ranch where that food was produced. That is uh, such an important point you brought up about the gut microbiome. And I mean, beyond just the immune system, I mean, there's people now, there's scientists who now believe it even is a, almost an extension of your brain. You produce actual neurotransmitters are produced in your gut. You have an unhealthy gut, you're more at risk for depression, anxiety, all sorts of issues. Uh, and then I also wonder, and, and this is something Callie and I had uh, previously spoken about. I'm not sure if it made its way into the episode or not, or if it was it before we hit record. Um, but allergies as well are another thing that, you know, you have to wonder if that has something to do with the soil depletion or this lack of phytonutrients, to your point. You know, look at it this way. I tell people, 
You know, the United States spends more per capita on health care than any other country in the world. Yet look where we're at. We're at the top or near the top in ADD, ADHD, Alzheimer's, autoimmune diseases, osteoporosis, cancer, and the list goes on and on. Well, why is that? Because as a very affluent country, you know, the farmers are able to use and have at their disposal copious amounts of these synthetics. Our soils are highly degraded, and hence, we're not really producing, and I'm going to catch a lot of flack for this comment, but I don't care. I've got tough skin. I can take it. I contend that farmers and ranchers today, by and large, do not produce food. They produce food-like substances. You know, you know. case in point, go somewhere and, and buy a tomato, okay? That's not really a tomato like you can grow in your garden, right? It, it doesn't taste the same. It doesn't look the same. And I don't mean to pick on tomatoes. And I again, I'm not putting the blame solely on farmers and ranchers. The blame goes much further beyond that. It's the food system as a whole. Let me give you this example. Uh, my wife and I were grocery shopping here a few weeks ago, and I happened to look at a pepper. You know, it's middle of winter. We don't we don't have a greenhouse. We're not producing peppers. But I happened to look at one, and here I am in Bismarck, North Dakota. And that pepper came from Denmark. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, how long did it take for a pepper to make its way from Denmark to Bismarck, North Dakota? And then how long ago was it picked? And what nutrients can really be left in that pepper? Okay, we've gotten away. And I think, you know, the COVID pandemic was a serious issue. And and I don't mean to make light of it because I feel for all those who lost loved ones during the pandemic. But it did bring light as to some of the issues with the current food system we have. It's extremely fragile. It's based on a very small number of companies controlling that food system. We have to get back to a more localized food system where we're eating more seasonally you know, based on the production in our area. And it, you know, it really, you know, bothers me when I watch on TV and you see how, oh, there's a storm coming to these large metropolitan areas. So there's this big run on food. What's wrong with that? Why don't these people have gardens? Why didn't they can and put up their own produce and, you know, all of us can do those type of things to ensure our own health and to ensure that we have adequate supply of nutrient-dense food. Yeah. I mean, actually, to that point, I think, uh, strangely, during COVID, I think a lot of people did get into uh, gardening. And I was happened to be one of those people. Um, and of course, you know, it's a micro, 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 micro version of a, of a farm. But to your point about the, the taste and the nutrient density of that food, I mean, I actually grew tomatoes at, uh, in the garden, and it is nothing like and, what you're and buying at you the grocery store. And when you bit into those, I bet, when you bit into those tomatoes, your body immediately started sending signals to your brain. Hey, this is good. I like it. And this gets back to your original question about uh, um, the allergies and that. Okay. You know, when I was growing up, nobody had allergies. Okay. Now... You look, 
I mean, it's it's a high percentage of young people. Why is that? I contend, for one thing, they don't have the phytonutrient compounds. They're not consuming food high in phytonutrient compounds and diverse array of them to have a healthy gut microbiome. The other thing, you know, when I grew up, we were out playing in the soil every day, you know, and we'd pull a carrot out of the garden and we didn't wash it off. We just start eating it. You have a little dirt soil on there. That's good. That's healthy. You know, the soil micro, the biology in the soil is closely related to your gut microbiome. It's a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. That's what my dad used to do too. And I remember the first time I ever remember him eating a carrot like that without, you know, kind of washing it off. I was like, what are you doing? And then now, like, as I get older, I'm like, oh, okay. He knew something. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) You know, that's the best thing is we have to we're tending to sterilize our children. And because of it, look what's happening. They're highly susceptible to these things. And I also think uh, to your point about the taste and the signals that your brain gets when you bite into that, I mean, there's veg- vegetables that I grew, which I usually thought I would not be a big fan of. But like an example is uh, radishes. I grew radishes because they grow quickly. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm an impatient person sometimes. So I was like, oh, okay, I'll grow some radishes and you know, I have other family members who like them. So I was like, okay, people, someone will eat them. And I ate those radishes and I, like, I could have been eating them for days. They were so good. But, but, but see, the difference is in that array of phytonutrient compounds that are in the radishes you grew. And we need to get back to that. I contend that a high percentage of consumers have never tasted nutrient dense food. You know, I mentioned how many airports I sit in, how many flights I take. Well, I observe people. You know, you're in an airport, you observe people. It amazes me the number of people and what they eat and consume in those airports. And I'm like, and they wonder why they're sick. They wonder why they're not healthy. You know, come on, you know. We have to get, we have to change the entire food system. So where, I mean, obviously you've taken a big role in that on the, on the farmer and rancher level, where uh, else can the, you know, the changes be made? I mean, I, I contend, I think one of those areas is education and even making people aware of this. And, you know, hopefully we're doing some of that with this episode, but uh, you know, I think people can, should definitely go watch the kiss the ground documentary uh, definitely go read more about this topic. There's a lot of great YouTube videos out there as well. But I think education is a is a major piece for because a lot of people wouldn't even know that this is a variable that could be affecting them. Well, exactly. And and you bring up you bring up a very good point. It all is about education. As I said, and I'm gonna repeat it again, I'm not putting all the blame on farmers and ranchers because society dictates their production model. Society can also drive change. You know, consumers, you mentioned through COVID, more consumers are taking an active role in sourcing where their food comes from, whether they're producing their own or seeking out local farmers and ranchers. Consumers, through their buying dollar, can dictate change throughout the entire food system. And I think that's huge. So often I get um, told that, well, we got to change federal policy. 
Well, we can do that, but you and I both know that that's uh, a very slow, hard process, the way the political winds change and how that pendulum swings. I would rather us focus on, as you said, education. Let's educate consumers. Let's educate the medical professionals. You know, it's ridiculous when you have uh, food pyramids out there that are so blatantly wrong. You know, they're, they're just terribly wrong. And we have to get back to what truly can drive human health. Yeah, and uh, not to pick on, on doctors, but I think they are, unfortunately, some of the, the least educated on nutritional uh, relationships to health. Uh, just in my experience of, of seeing it's, I don't think they teach much about it in medical school. Most doctors went to medical school, not, you know, super recently. And even what they teach today in medical school isn't actually correct. So there's issues no matter, you know, where you are on that, uh, in the medical, in the, uh, in the physician world and, and how many years ago you went to medical school. Absolutely. And, you know, a saying I often use is you cannot implement what you do not know. You know, I have several college degrees and I didn't know about the principles of soil health, the rules of adaptive stewardship, the four ecosystem processes. I didn't know about that. Well, same as you said, the medical profession, they don't teach preventative medicine in most medical schools. We need to get back to that. Or even food as a, um, I mean, this is a little bit of an aside here, but, um, you know, my, my father had ALS and he, you know, that disease is incurable. There's not really a, a drug for it. Um, but there have been studies done about certain foods and then especially quantity of food and how that influences, uh, the disease progression. And if you ask a neurologist about this, they've never heard about it, but it's been studied for decades and it's actually very well known, but you have to go find it on your own. But your neurologist or your doctor will not, they've never heard of it because that's not something they're actively taught. And then, you know, they've not kept up with the research. So, yeah. so I take it he drank a lot of bone broth and things like that. <laughs> it, it's, it's things like that. It's also, uh, you know, actually increasing the amount that you consume, which is kind of difficult with that disease. But if you can consume more, um, you actually can prevent some of the muscle degradation that comes with the, the disease, or at least slow it down significantly. So there are there are things you can do. Of course, those are not uh, prescription drugs. So there's not going to be commercials on TV marketing those those things. Let, let me just share briefly a, a quick story on that and I in no way want to infer that this is all medical doctors, but this is a true story. So I was given a presentation on regenerative agriculture to a civic group made up of mostly of professionals there. And I talked about these phytonutrients and using food as preventative medicine. And a doctor stood up and he actually said this. He said, Gabe, you have to realize I make my living writing prescriptions. And I couldn't believe he said that. And those who know me know that I don't hold anything back. I immediately, without thinking, said, and did you not also take an oath? And oh boy, he got upset at that one. But I thought, how sad is it that he took an oath to care for people, but 
the best way to care for people, I believe, would be in pre through prevention. But instead, he was more concerned about writing prescriptions. How sad is that? <laughs> yeah, and that's just, unfortunately, that's the that's a whole different system with a whole lot of problems. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's, again, goes back to in some of these incentives and the education. And I think, you know, there's a lot of work uh, to be done in both systems. And obviously, they're related as well. I think there's you know, as people get more interested in their health, they get more interested in the things that they're putting into their body. And then it creates this virtuous cycle um, from the education piece, as we were just talking about. Um, so so I guess another another question I had uh, is, you know, the the resiliency that you kind of alluded to earlier uh, mm -hmm. of this approach versus the monocropping approach. Yep. Can you just talk a little bit more about that? And, you know, I think especially as people think about uh, natural disasters, and, and you obviously suffered that yourself. Um, mm -hmm. How does this approach kind of work better than, than the way you were doing it before? Yeah, and I think the best way for me to describe that is to share what this ranch that we're on here has been through the past three years. Okay, I mentioned early on here, we get between 16 and 18 inches total precipitation in a year, normally. Well, the past three years here on our ranch, total precip, we've had 6.2, 5.6, and 6.6 .6 inches of precipitation. Okay, that's not much, okay? In saying that, uh, our son who runs the ranch now never had to sell off any livestock. He produced enough feed to feed the livestock. He was still able to harvest crops. Now, I'm not saying by any means they were bumper crops, but it was enough where he gleaned a profit and he was able to feed all his livestock. Okay. At the same time, most of the neighbors immediately adjacent to us, they harvested crops one out of three years. Okay. Wow. Most of the neighbors had to sell the majority of their livestock. Okay. We didn't have to. Why is that? Well, you mentioned the amount of carbon we have in our soils. It's not how much moisture you get. It's how much can you infiltrate into the soil because your soil is well aggregated. Think of it like marbles in a jar. You pour water over those marbles. Water's going to flow to the bottom of the jar quickly because of those pore spaces. That's how our soils are. It's well aggregated. So we're able to infiltrate more water. Then because of the high amount of carbon, carbon acts like a sponge. It holds onto that water. And then we have our, our soil well armored. You don't see bare soil. It's covered. So, the, you know, think of if you put a wet rag out on the sidewalk during the heat of the summer, you can wait hours, pick it up. It'll still be wet underneath. Same as it is with a well armored soil. And that biology in the soil, microbiology, lives in and on thin films of water in the pore spaces between the soil aggregates. So it's all of these practices that we do that make our farm very resilient to wide swings in temperature, to drought, to excess moisture. You know, I contend that look at every spring now, we always hear about flooding up along major river systems. Well, why is that? Are we getting much more precipitation? No. The answer is because our soils are so degraded, we can no longer infiltrate that water onto the landscape and then because we don't have as much carbon in the soil, we can't hold on to it. 
Now we end up with all this flooding and disasters occurring from that. So often, mankind creates its own ecological disasters. Oh, absolutely. It's, you know, the natural disaster is just the, it's like the straw that broke the camel's back, but it was already an accumulation of errors that got it to the point where that natural disaster became a true disaster and not just a, you know, weather event or something. Yep, that's exactly right. So what is the pushback then that you get from farmers and ranchers on this? I mean, if, and I don't mean to just kind of focus on them in this ecosystem. It's just where you've had the most experience. So why would a rancher, you know, come when you present something at a, you know, one of these events that you do or you give a talk? I mean, I would imagine everyone's just kind of like jumping at it. But what is some of the pushback you get if you get pushback? Yeah. And, and the pushback, well, that works for you, but my place is different. Well, you know, once I get out onto their place and show them, I look at their soils, then I go over to the road ditch or a fence line, show them those soils. Those soils will 99 times out of 100 be healthier than their soils. So I can squelch their thoughts there. But realize farming and ranching is a very um, low profit business from the standpoint of return on investment. Farmers and ranchers put their whole livelihood at risk every year in order to put a crop in the ground and keep going. The vast majority of farmers and ranchers, I'm sure it's 85 plus percent, have to borrow operating capital from lending institutions in order to uh, get be able to purchase the inputs for the year. So they're very highly leveraged. That creates a lot of tension and stress. You know, farming and ranching has one of the highest suicide rates of any occupation in the world. And so it's a high stress. So for them to think differently, step outside the box, you know, I was forced to because I was going to lose my ranch if I didn't do something differently. Their fear of the unknown is a very, very powerful thing. You know, we all feel comfortable at home. We all feel comfortable, you know, with our families and in our circles. Well, to step outside that, that's not easy for some people. There's a lot of peer pressure involved. And then you have to realize because they have to borrow that money financially, the lending institution's going to say to them, no, you're not going to try different things. That's too risky. Well, I think one of the reasons understanding ag is so successful is because we provide the confidence and guidance so that it's not risky to them to try these things. You know, we do it in a very methodical manner uh, that fits within their risk aversion, their risk tolerance, and we guide them down the path so that we quickly increase their profitability. I think then it allows uh, much greater success as to them moving down the regenerative path. And is there a difference in the feedback you get from people who are, you know, farming for generations and have, you know, intend to kind of continue on that path versus, I think you'd alluded to maybe speaking with some larger companies and, and outfits as well. You know, is there, are they think, I mean, they have a benefit obviously to their corporation if they mm -hmm. implement mm -hmm. these practices, but I'm just curious of the you know, kind of smaller farmer versus these larger companies, how, how they're all thinking about it. Well, I think it goes back to, you know, I think it was Henry Ford who said, 
Whether you think you can or you think you cannot, you're correct. Okay. And many of the people who attend our soil health academies or hire Understanding Ag to consult with them, they really want to make change. You know, one of the really pivotal moments in my life was 1997. I heard Don Campbell speak and Don Campbell said, if you want to make small changes, change the way you do things. But if you want to make major changes, change the way you see things. And I remember driving home from that and I thought, that's it. I've got to change the way I look at things. And, you know, I was, my back was up against a wall. I had to change. So who is going to be successful at it are those who want to change, who truly want it. You know, there's no farmer out there who likes to go spray chemicals. That's not a good job and they don't feel good doing it. So they want to change, but they're so... Um, far down the rabbit hole, so to speak, in the conventional model. They're highly leveraged. They have debt to pay. It's It becomes more difficult unless they have some guidance. Yep. Yep. And I guess uh, one bit of pushback that I've seen or, or heard people say in regards to regenerative agriculture in general, and this maybe applies more to meat, uh, regenerative farming of, of animals as opposed to of vegetables, but I've heard the pushback that, oh, how, how would we feed everyone in this country if we, you know, all use these tactics? I'm sure you've heard that before. Yeah, let me address that. And I'll use myself as an example. Okay, so I produce spring wheat. My neighbor produces spring wheat, right? He may or may not produce a little more per acre than I am, a few more bushels. We'll say he does, even though I at my average wheat yield is about 25% higher than the average in the county. So it's not like I'm quote unquote a poor farmer, okay? So we both produce a wheat yield, okay? But then after the wheat crop, I'm gonna seed a cover crop, okay? That cover crop's there to cycle nutrients for me. Then I'm gonna graze that cover crop with my grass-finished beef. I may put my grass-finished lamb on there. Our bees have access to the pollen produced in that cover crop so they can produce honey we may bring our chickens on there, our land hens, to produce eggs. So all of a sudden, I'm producing so much per acre, he's back down here. Who's going to feed the world first? You know, that's such a ridiculous point that I think they would be embarrassed to ask that question. Yeah, because you have you have almost a dozen, you know, probably more than a dozen businesses off the back of, yeah, one field. Yeah, so yeah. We're, it's, we think of it as an ecosystem. And in order to really be successful, you need to think of your farm or ranch as an ecosystem, even for a gardener. A gardener's got to think of their garden as an ecosystem, you know. Look at gardeners, what they do. And I'm getting off the, the, the question a little bit here. But first thing most gardeners do is go out and till the soil. Okay, what's one of the worst things you can do if you're trying to produce nutrient-dense food? The answer is till the soil. That tillage destroys mycorrhizal fungi. It destroys the home for biology. The very things that are needed to increase the nutrient density of your food. So even gardeners have to look at their garden as an ecosystem. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. And then I guess on the gardening side, I think composting is an interesting way to start thinking about your life as a ecosystem because you know you're taking food that you ate or food scraps, potentially food that you even grew in your garden, 
and turning that back into, you know, soil. Yep. And, and there's right and wrong ways to compost also. I encourage everyone to uh, Google and research the Johnson slash Sue, and Sue is spelled S-U, method. It's a static method, and it's proven to, to propagate a much more diverse array of microbiology. And we've had good luck uh, using that type of compost in gardens to jumpstart the biological life of those gardens. Well, I'll definitely link to that in the uh, in the show notes for sure. I'm actually not even familiar with that, so I'll have to take a look myself uh, and potentially apply it to to my own garden. Uh, so, if let's say somebody's not a farmer, rancher, uh, maybe they're a gardener, but they're just interested in supporting regenerative agriculture, what are some good ways for them to do that? I mean, you mentioned voting with your you know your dollars essentially. Yep, vote with your dollar, but also educate, and by that I mean. Okay, if you have a garden, why not why not share some of your produce with less fortunate and explain to them? And I really get tired of people saying, "Well, Gabe, not everybody can afford to purchase regeneratively grown products." And then I'll just simply turn around and ask them, "Okay, how many prescriptions are you on? What do you pay for health insurance? You cannot afford not to." Okay, you look today, um, the cost of cereal, and then you go price out what it would take to buy some uh, vegetables or fruits that are regeneratively grown or pastured proteins, you know, eggs, etc. You can serve your children regenerative eggs and bacon at a lower price point than you can that cereal you're feeding them. It may not be as convenient, but what's more important, your child's health or convenience? Yeah, and also it keeps you more uh, more full, satiated. It's much better for you. Honestly, tastes better in many ways as well. <laughs> I mean, I know eggs have gotten more expensive, but they're still relatively, you know, relative to the nutritional kind of firepower that they bring. It's uh, unbelievable food. Um, yeah. Okay. So, and I think, so that makes sense and probably get to know their local farmer. You'd also mentioned. Yeah. Go to, go to the farmer's market, get to know your local farmer or rancher, and then, uh, really support them and tell others about them because, you know, today it's really driven by large box stores and, you know, buying volume, cheap, low price. Nobody should look at their health as something that you want to uh, take care of at the lowest price point possible because you're going to get what you pay for. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you're going to pay for it one way or another, you know, whether it's to your point about the prescriptions or, or your health care versus, you know, paying for it in good food. Uh, and then I guess with meat, uh, I've seen some companies, I'm, I'm uh, not pulling their name off the top of my head right now, but I have seen some companies try to build a direct-to-consumer model where they work with the farmers on one side have you, and, and sell to the consumers on the other side. Have you seen any of those do a good job in your opinion? Well, I'm kind of biased in the fact that my son markets all of our meat directly to consumers and it works very well. There, There's many, many uh, ranchers who are selling their proteins direct to consumer. And today's uh, with today's technology, you know, 
you can ship that protein anywhere in the United States uh, and uh, get it into the hands of any consumer. So it's definitely doable. And in talking about the proteins, um, they're not all the same. You know, studies we've done and, and have shown in his recent book, What Your Food Ate, Dr. David Montgomery talks about the nutrient density of pastured proteins. And he actually uh, came and purchased some protein from my son. And he compared the omega, we're all familiar with omega-6 and omega-3s and the benefits of omega-3s and the conjugated linoleic acids and the profile they have. And what he actually found is that the omega-3 content of a steak from Brown's Ranch is higher than that found in wild salmon. So think about that. People think, oh, we're buying and consuming wild salmon because of its omega-3 content. Well, you can consume steak that's higher in omega-3s and CLAs. So, and that all goes back to how the health of the soil that grew the plants that that animal consumed. That's amazing. Um, yeah, I, I, I've uh, started reading that book, actually. I'm in the middle of it right mm -hmm. now, and it's it's fascinating. Mm -hmm. I mean, it makes so much sense going back to the ecosystem point. Yep. I mean, you even brought up earlier in the conversation, you know, the, the micro uh, microorganisms in the soil are eating what's kind of produced by the plants, and the plants are eating what's produced by the microorganisms. Yep. You're consuming the plants, but so are the animals that you end yep. up consuming. Healthy soil, healthy plants, healthy animals, healthy people. It's yep. really that simple. You know, it's an ecosystem and our health goes back directly to the health of the soil. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Gabe, if uh, people want to learn more about regenerative agriculture, so not as necessarily consumers, but they want to learn more about what uh, you teach and they want to engage further, what's the best place for them to go? To, to do that. Sure. I, I would encourage you to look at our Understanding Ag website, and we have a resource tab at the top of the page. Click on that. We do a lot of free webinars, and uh, we record them. They're available for anyone to watch free. You can also go on our SoilHealthAcademy.org uh, website and uh, learn about uh, educational opportunities there. Fantastic. Well, I'm also going to link to all of this in the show notes. So anybody who wants to check that out, you can click directly. Uh, Gabe, thanks so much for coming on. This has been fantastic. And thanks for doing what you do uh, to improve soil health and everyone's health in general. Well, thank you. It was a real pleasure being with you.